excuse me, we're going to start this morning the vocabulary lesson with the word pericope. How many knew what pericope was or how many people thought when they first saw it just now that it looks like pericope? Yeah, it looks like pericope, doesn't it? Why in the world anybody would call this pericope? I have no idea. It's just that's what I learned. That it's actually called pericope. I'm guessing it's some foreign language. Okay, gets transferred into English. And here's what it means: a telling of an event or a group of teachings that stand on their own, especially in the Gospels. And so, if you take one of those stories about Jesus, like, say, the uh, calming of the sea, where Jesus is on the boat, that story, just kind of concise and in and of itself, is called a pericope. And there are lots of pericopes in the New Testament. And so you can't go away from here today and say to your friend as you leave church, I didn't learn anything today. He didn't say anything of consequence. I have taught you today about pericopes. You've learned something of significance here. Okay? Well, we are going to do something with this notion of pericopes. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10, which is... In your Bibles, if you're in a pew Bible, it's on page 715. And we're actually going to reference here, real quickly, three different pericopes. Mark chapter 10, and I want you to look at verse 29, first of all. Or maybe we can start with verse 28. Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. Ooh. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And that ends a pericope. And then there's another one that starts in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Okay? And that's a pericope. And then we've got another one. It starts in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you think, Kelly, why did you make such a big deal about pericopes? There's a reason. It's because when the gospel writer assembles pericopes together in the life of Jesus, he does so oftentimes with some kind of thematic idea. Like he joins things together that kind of fit. And right now, we've got three of these that I just read, verse 28 and following of the first one, and then verse 32 and following, and then verse 35 and following. And I want you to tell me what is the theme of those three pericopes. Because of the things I read, there's pretty obviously something that stands out as being the motive for Mark linking together these stories from the life of Jesus. Now, anytime I ask for this and I ask for audience participation, I run great risk. And that is that somebody's going to raise their hand and they're going to tell me some theme and it's not what I'm looking for. And then I have to say to them, you know what? (laughs) That's a great idea, but that's not what I was looking for. So if that happens to you in the next 30 seconds or so, it's okay. You found something wonderful. Don't let it impact your self-esteem, but it may not be what I'm exactly looking for, okay? So what is it that seems to be a common theme, maybe the thread that runs through these three different stories from the life of Jesus? Somebody tell me, and I, 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 again, I left myself at risk. I could have picked somebody and told them the answer, and they, I could have called on them. What's that? Gary, you know, that's a really good one. And and what I'm looking for has a lot to do with the notion of crucifixion. And I don't want your self-esteem to be lowered. (laughs) But that's not exactly it. Okay? Thanks. I appreciate that, Gare. And that wasn't planned either, folks. Okay. Somebody says something over here. Yeah, the notion of suffering or sacrificial suffering. It, it shows up in all three of these, and the crucifixion is, of course, a perfect example of this notion of suffering. The idea that there are those who put themselves out there and allow themselves to be in some way intimidated or beaten or disenfranchised, suffering in some way is the theme. And what's interesting is the way that this section kind of ends. As it ends in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because Jesus is ultimately, of course, the the epitome of what it means to suffer and to serve. And that really is where we're going this morning. And what's amazing to me is just how much in contrast this whole line of thinking is with where our world is at, where our society is. Our society does not like this very much. In fact, even people sitting here today don't really like to hear this that much. The fact that what Christ really wants from you more than anything else is for you to be a servant. And that just kind of rubs against everything that we're oriented toward. We tend to want to lift ourselves up. 
we tend to want to focus on ourselves. When we look at our goals and things we want to achieve in life, most of the time they have to do with us. And all the while, Jesus, and as we're going to see in just a moment, Paul, seemed to be asking something else of us. I want you to turn now to the book of Philippians. If I remember, I think the section we're at is about page 830 in the Pew Bibles. That could be wrong, but that, that number kind of sticks in my head. And we're, we're in Philippians chapter 2 today. And here's the situation. We'll read this in just a moment. But first, I want you to just look at chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 4, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names excuse me, are written in the book of life. But clearly what's happening here, and we're going to see this, it's in 4.2, and then it's going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is that there is some kind of problem within the Philippian church. Paul loves these people. Like, we've seen that already. There's great relationship between Paul and the Philippian Christians. But there is a problem in this church. He, he states it very specifically in chapter 4, verse 2. There are a couple of women in this congregation that are not getting along. And the tragedy is that they're great servants of Christ. Like Paul says, they stand alongside him and serving in the gospel. But as they're standing alongside him, serving in the gospel, and obviously serving Christ, they are not standing with each other. And so now look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, because here what we see is Paul's admonitions to address exactly this kind of situation. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now all we hear really are the admonitions. Paul doesn't describe the full situation here. <clears throat> like he doesn't say, man, Eudea's been a brat. She has been so mean to Syntyche, I just can't take it any longer. But these two ladies have got to get along. And Syntyche, every time she hears Eudea speak, she rolls her eyes, crosses her arms. It's like they just can't even be in the same room together. So he doesn't give us all those details, but it's clearly that kind of situation that Paul is trying to address. And so Paul is, in fact, trying to fix problems in relationships. And I don't know if this ever happens to you. Maybe you always get along perfectly with everyone all the time. Huh? Is that, is that your situation? Are you always perfectly in line with everybody? My guess is not. And sometimes these problems in relationships affect us 
greatly. In fact, I don't know that it goes too far to say that the thing that causes the biggest grief in life are the relationship problems that we have. I mean, just think about this for a minute. You think, well, no, actually, I have cancer. That's a little bit bigger than the relationship problems I have. But I don't know about that. In fact, there are a lot of people who can live quite easily with an illness in their lives. And a worse grief would be to have someone pass away and say afterward, I didn't have an opportunity to reconcile with them. And that, in fact, happens all the time. And there are people who go through the rest of their lives after a loved one passed away thinking to themselves, if only I could have said this. If only if I, I, I wouldn't have said this when they were alive. And they grieve over the fact that this relationship was never mended. You may be one of those people. It is not easy to have that kind of poor relationship with someone that, in fact, you love. And you can talk with people who grew up during the Depression. And it's amazing to me how the people who grew up in the Depression years oftentimes will talk about those years as being some of the best. Clearly, their economic status was not the thing that made them happy or sad. What made them happy about those circumstances as they look back are the relationships that they had in the midst of it. Those relationships carried them through. And it just wasn't their being poor that made them happy or unhappy. And so, clearly, there are other things that are more important than how I'm doing economically, how my health is. And I think that oftentimes it's relationships that either make or break us. And what Paul is trying to say here this morning is, through Philippians, that in the midst of relationship problems, there are things that we can do, should do, to fix those. And we may be able to find ourselves actually not getting into the relationship problem from the outset because we chose a certain attitude that goes along with living out relationships. And so Paul does this. And we're going to take these three in turn. Paul works to fix attitudes in relationships by talking about first the source and then the character and then the ultimate example for the attitudes that we're to bring into relationships. So let's talk about first the source. What's the source for right relationships? What's the source for right attitudes when it comes to relationships? And the source is found in verse 1. Look at verse 1 in your Bibles again in Philippians 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And I want to ask the question, I guess, first, do you? Do you have any comfort from his love? Do you have any fellowship with the Spirit? 
Is there any tenderness and compassion that God has shown you? Paul doesn't specifically say that the tenderness and compassion is God's tenderness and compassion for us, but I think that runs in line with the other comments. We receive these things from God in relationship with Him, and it's our relationship with Him that begins to color and to shape everything else that we are in terms of our other relationships. When Paul says, if, and he says this four times in verse 1, when Paul says, if you have any comfort from his love, for example, he's not really asking the question, do you? Because he knows they do. He totally understands that they have received these things from Christ. The point is that God is one with them and treats them in this way, and the fact that we would get treated this way by God is supposed to change us. We should be relationally different because of the way that God has treated us. Something should have happened. The Spirit should be at work. There should be transformation taking place. Paul's goal here is to see things change at the human level, but he starts at the God level. In fact, it's always that way. God does something first for us, to us, in us. And then any response that we make in terms of our behavior comes in response to what God has done first. What has God done first? Well, God first has brought his encouragement by uniting us with himself. First, he has comforted us in his love. First, he's provided us fellowship with the Spirit. First, he's offered us his tenderness and compassion. And when God does that, something happens inside of me. I begin to be altered. Like, I think sometimes about what I would be like. What kind of person would I be if Jesus had not come into my life? Like, I know, I know that I have the capacity to lose my temper. Robin knows that I have the capacity to lose my temper. Now, I don't know how often she thinks that happens. I don't think it happens very often. It doesn't happen as often as it used to. I think I'm maybe a little bit better in responding to things in life than I used to be. But if there's any progress that's ever been made, if I'm any different at all than I would have been without Christ, it's only because of what God has offered to me first. Good things start with what God has done. He's the source of the proper attitude that is supposed to be there in relationships. And by the way, I don't know of anywhere where this is more important than in the husband and wife relationship. I I always say, when I do weddings, I always say, become the servant of your spouse. And when the two of you are falling all over each other, trying to serve the other one, your relationship is going to be healthier in the process. And I absolutely believe that. And so if you have a marriage that isn't quite what you want it to be, let me make the suggestion to you that you become the servant of your spouse the way that God calls us to be of each other. This is exactly what Paul says. And I think that in the midst of serving one another, God is going to bless you in that relationship. I've told the story before about Albert Schweitzer being at Harvard. After he'd gone to Africa, he'd, Schweitzer had three doctorates when he was in Germany. One in music, one in theology, and one in 
medicine. And he's sitting in his office one day at the university. A letter comes across his desk and talks about how they need medical personnel in the Congo. And he looks at the letter. And I think he said out loud to himself, not that I was there. But I think he said out, out loud to himself, I have now realized my life's ambition. I know what I'm going to do with the rest of his life. He left the university post, went to the Congo. After years of service there and winning all kinds of recognition for the position that he takes in the world, he is asked to lecture at Harvard. And he told the students at Harvard, those of you who are sitting here today are among the elite of the world, but there is only one way that any of you will ever find happiness. Those of you who will be truly happy will be those who choose to serve. That's a significant line. And he was absolutely right. And so we need to serve one another. Paul says that's the only way that you can have healthy relationships. You start with what God has done for you and you move into serving others. Now, what is, in fact, the attitude or character we're supposed to have in these relationships? Well, we read on here and look at verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do you know that there's people in our world who if they took that seriously, they would stand motionless? They wouldn't know what to do. Because all of their activity is out of selfish ambition and vain conceit? They wouldn't be able to move. And this is to be our attitude. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We hear those words and it just it sounds like too big of a challenge. But it seems to me that this is exactly what Christ was expecting and hoping that we would do. And I think that we can. Let me draw attention to somebody who does this. In our church, and they're here this morning. I've got to tell you how impressed I am repeatedly with the character and the actions of Linda Asen. You know, I watched Linda serve over and over and over again, all week long, all kinds of different people in all kinds of different contexts. Steve has remarked that they need to move way closer to the building because she's always here doing something. And I, there's a sense in which I want to say, that's exactly right, come join us. But Linda puts herself out there in service to Christ. Now, I don't know if in all her relationships, you know, Steve might say, well, you got some parts of that right about her. I don't know if all in, in all her relationships, she's perfect in terms of always being the one who chooses to serve, always lets someone else have what they want. She's not perfect. But she has chosen a lifestyle where she says, I'm going to be a servant. 
And this is exactly what God calls us to. So we have a source and we have a style that he's supposed that we're supposed to be in Christ. Thirdly, Paul gives us the ultimate example of right attitudes when it comes to relationships. And I want you to notice here specifically, we're going to read verses 5 through 11, and I want you to notice how this starts. He does not start talking about behaviors. Instead of talking about behaviors, he talks about an attitude or a mindset that is there in the one who serves. And so he says, your attitude, not your behavior, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And when it says that, what it means is, he had life with God. He is God. He is one with him. But he chooses intentionally not to hold on to that. Instead, he lets it go. And so in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so he goes from the God who made the universe to being a wandering peasant in Galilee. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, but it wasn't just that he became a human being. He became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Which in those days, it wasn't just the... Like people talk about how horrible crucifixion is. It was horrible. It is agonizing. But it's not as though crucifixion is the only painful death that has ever been devised. So much of the issue here is just the fact that Jesus is ridiculed. He's mocked. He is ashamed by the act of crucifixion being his. And so we're to have this attitude, Paul says, where as far as Christ is concerned, he loses all his status. He becomes nothing but a servant, even a human being, and then ultimately a human being who's humiliated. And here's the question for the morning. What will be your attitude in your relationships? And you know it's the easiest thing in the world for us to just hear the question, walk away from the question, not allow the question to really impose itself on our lives. And I want to say to you this morning that I hope you don't do that. Husbands and wives, how will you treat each other? Will you be servants? And if you're thinking to yourself right now, I don't think I can do that. then I think it's you who most of all needs to take this seriously. How will you treat your co-workers or your peers? When an issue arises, do you have the ability to say to them, 
I will be your servant. Can you treat your children like this? Or can you treat your parents like this? And can you treat your church family like this? Where we say to the other, I will serve you. You know, I can't promise you that if you choose to do this, that you won't be taken, care, uh, taken advantage of. It's very possible that you will. I can't promise you that you're always going to have all the things in life that you want if you give yourself as a servant to others. Like you may not have all the possessions and goods. You may not have the position that you long for. But there's a promise that Jesus made over in Mark chapter 10. Do you remember what it was? The first will be last, and the last will be first. And it makes sense to me that if that's truly the case, and I absolutely believe that it is, that we take seriously the call of Christ and the example of Christ for us to be servants of each other. And so I hope you do. You will be faced without a doubt sometime in the next day, maybe the next few minutes, with the challenge of whether or not you're going to be a servant or something less than a servant. And God wants you to serve. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you set us a wonderful example by being a servant. By choosing to come and serve rather than to be served. And to the extent that you gave your life as a ransom for many. You came to this earth and you became like one of us and God, we're not much. But your son became like us. And Father, we pray that we would see in the example of Jesus a fitting life for us to emulate. We pray that you would change us and shape us by what we've experienced from you in the encouragement we've received, the comfort that we've received, the tenderness that we've received. Help us, Father, to respond to what you've done for us by giving our lives in service to others. And I pray this for each person here today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.